Holy Gospel according to St. Mark, chapter 1. Glory to you, O Lord. After John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they, let their father, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let's look at the gospel reading. And actually, we're just going to pretty much look at the first two verses. Uh, four or five years ago, I preached a sermon on this text. And it's the kind of thing I need to, we need to talk about this text more than once every four or five years. It's a very, very important text for understanding uh, who we are, who God has called us to be in Jesus Christ. But, but also, for, for those of us who are members of the church, thinking about the mission of St. James, understanding this uh, Mark 1, 14 and 15, uh, super key, and I need to not neglect it. And, and the reason why it's key is this, is because um, I think that, I know not everybody in here is a Christian, but for those of, those of you who are Christians, the commitment to the gospel is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian, the commitment to the Christian gospel. But what does gospel mean? That question, what is the gospel? Uh, that's a, that's a, that, that question, not everybody says the same thing about that. Um, in, in most Lutheran churches that I know, as well as the Baptist churches that I grew up in, if you had asked the question, what is the gospel? The answers might have been somewhere around, I, I was trying to think about this, basically two answers that I would have gotten in, in those churches. One is, um, the gospel is, uh, it, it's, it's the reality that since Jesus has died and risen from the dead, you, if you believe in him, can go to heaven someday. Um, I mean, I, I won't talk about that. You guys know uh, my thoughts about that. It's just not... It's not in the Bible. It's, it's, it's true that for those people who die in Jesus Christ, your soul does, does go up to, to be safe with Jesus while your body rests in the grave. But the Bible hardly ever talks about that. To make that kind of the main story, that the, the definition of the gospel is how to get to heaven when you die. It's just not being faithful to God's word. The, the other answer that, I, that I, I would frequently get from both, like I said, any of the churches I've been in, Lutheran or Baptist, would be since Jesus has died and risen from the dead, now your sins can be forgiven. Jesus died on the cross to forgive our sins and rose from the dead to give us righteousness. Um, again, that is, uh, that's, I think that's actually a little bit better than uh, option A. But it's not the whole story. It's just a little tiny part of the story. Uh, what, those two, what those two things have in common, though, you know, believe in Jesus so that you can go to heaven someday or believe in Jesus so that your sins can be forgiven is, is that they aren't public, they're very personal. They're the kind of things that can mean something to you, but not have any sort of real effect out on the street in the day-to-day -day world. The gospel in the Bible is something different than that. It's something different than that. And we'll look at it uh, here. I mean, one of the, the main question we need to ask is this, is when Jesus comes into, the, into Galilee uh, and, he, and he says things like, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel, what does everybody hear him saying? That's the question. 
he's obviously using language that they know. Nobody says, wait a second, what's the gospel? And he's like, oh, yeah, I just invented that. I forgot to tell you. The gospel is kind of my word for how I take you to heaven. He doesn't do that. He says, repent and believe in the gospel. And everybody says, okay, we're on board. What would they have understood? What would they have, what would they have uh, uh, understood him to be saying? Um, that's very important. You can tell a little bit from uh, what their actions are afterwards, how the disciples act, what their anticipations are that he will do. But one way that you can get at this, and like I said, if, if, if you guys have uh, extremely good memories, and, um, and even if you do, I anticipate you using those extremely good memories on things uh, more important than my sermons. Five years ago, I, I, I talked about these two, these two texts here, but I'm, I'm going to give it to you again uh, for those of us who, who don't remember. We can know what the gospel is because the gospel was a common word in first century Judaism and in the whole Roman Empire. Everybody knew what the word gospel was. And surprise of surprise, it's not like a religious word. It's not about something you believe in your heart. It's not about your destiny after death. It's actually a very, very cold, hard, concrete, political word. Now, I say it's not a religious word, it's a political word. For those of you who've been around here for long enough, you know that to, to, for me to say it's not religious, it's, it's not religious, it's political, is very, very artificial. That's the kind of thing that only makes sense in America and in Europe in the past 200 years. In the ancient world, they would have never have divided religion and politics up. The Jews wouldn't have, the Romans wouldn't have. This too qualifies as that, okay? So Jesus says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let's talk about what he means. Now, the way to do it is this. I'll give you two different things here, and then we'll kind of bring them together. The first is in your bulletin. It's in Isaiah 52. So if we can look at that, um, uh, Isaiah 52, 7, right at the beginning of the, of the Old Testament reading, uh, Isaiah says this, and let me set it up for you. Isaiah is thinking about a day when Israel is going to be exiled in Babylon, that Nebuchadnezzar is going to come at the beginning of the 6th century BC. He's going to blow Jerusalem up. He's going to, take the, he's going to uh, destroy the temple. He's going to take the treasures out of the temple back to Babylon, take many of the citizens back to Babylon. And he is, he's in charge. He's the new Pharaoh. He's the new Sennacherib. He is the slave owner over them, over the, over the Jews. They no longer belong to themselves. They no longer have a nation. They belong to Babylon. But Isaiah, by the Holy Spirit, Isaiah sees in the future a day when the baddies are going to be defeated, and God, who has abandoned his temple, like Ezekiel sees, because Israel's rebelled against him, is going to come back home, move back into the rebuilt temple, and Israel, once again, is going to be a flourishing country. Jerusalem is going to be a flourishing city. The Messiah will be there ruling and reigning, and God's people will once again be free and be owned only by Yahweh, the creator God. Isaiah sees, it, sees that day in the future. And the way he pictures it is this. Look at Isaiah 52, verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings uh, good news. And that word good news there in the Septuagint is just the same word that we have in the New Testament for gospel. Who brings gospel. Who publishes peace. Who brings gospel of happiness. Who publishes salvation. Who says to Zion, your God reigns. So in the verse 8, you get the voice of the watchman. This is the voice of the watchman, right? But in, in verse 7, it's these watchmen are looking out over the walls of Jerusalem, and they're seeing, off in the distance, they're seeing messengers. This is how people got news in the ancient world, right? There wasn't, uh, you know, uh, radio or TV or Twitter. 
messengers running over the hills to bring this new message. And Isaiah says, when your watchmen see those particular messengers coming into your city, they will eventually end up saying, that was beautiful. Those people were beautiful. I could go back in my mind and just remember the first time I saw them coming. And I remember that was the best day ever. Because when they came in, they brought gospel. They uses the word gospel several times there. Who brings gospel, publishes peace. Who brings gospel of happiness, who publishes salvation. Now, what is it that they published? They ran into the city and they said, your God reigns. That's, that's at the, the line at the end of verse seven. That was the gospel. The gospel was the news that the bad king is on his way out and the true king, Yahweh, is r- ruling and reigning once again. Nobody, nobody in Israel would have thought d- during the Babylonian exile that Yahweh was reigning. They would have known this is, you know, this is Nebuchadnezzar. Or later on, it's uh, Cyrus. Or later on, it's Alexander the Great. Or later on in Jesus' day, it's Augustus Caesar, or Ti- Tiberius Caesar. They would have known who the king was. But there's going to come a day when the bad kings will be out and the one true king, Yahweh, will be installed on his throne. And the word for that is gospel. The Jews did not make this word up. This is a word that had common currency in the ancient world. Let me give you an example, and then we'll tie these, this is, this is example two, and then we'll tie these two together. This is an example from the Roman Empire where the word gospel is used. It's not, it's, 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 this is not a religious thing, except in the sense that at that world, everything was religious in, in that world. This is from uh, an inscription that uh, archaeologists found several hundred years ago in a city called Priene. It's called the Calendar Inscription of Priene, P-R-I-E-N-E. It's got its own Wikipedia page. You can go look it up after this if you want to. And the inscription was basically a big thank you note to Caesar Augustus, who was the Caesar when Jesus was born, who's mentioned in Luke chapter 2. But um, this is what you would do. People with money, this is the way the patronage system would work. People with massive amounts of money, like Caesar Augustus, would build like nice things in your city. They'd build a new street in your city, a new library, new amphitheater or a theater or something like that. And then you would put a, a, a big plaque up, basically kissing up to him, saying thank you for doing this. And this is what this plaque says. Um, it's, it's in Greek, but uh, this is what it says in English. Since providence, which has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our life, has set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus, so providence, the, the goddess providence, who cares for us, has put everything perfectly in order in our lives by giving us you, Augustus. You're just so magnificent, Caesar Augustus. Whom she filled with virtue. She filled Augustus with virtue that he might benefit humankind, sending him as a savior. Remember that word? In in Greek, it's it's, it's the word soter, which in Greek is the exact same word that gets applied to Jesus in the New Testament. Here it's applied by people who don't know anything about Judaism, probably. Well, I'm sure they know about Judaism. They probably don't know about Christianity at this date. It's a little bit, uh, this is Augustus lived before Christ's uh, uh, life and ministry. Um, uh, he lived in the early part of the first century. But sending him as a savior, both for us and for our descendants, that he might end war, so peace, the peace of Rome, and arrange all things. And since he, Caesar, by his appearance, excelled even our anticipations, we've always hoped for like the perfect ruler, but Caesar was even better than that surpassing all previous benefactors and not even leaving to posterity any, any hope of surpassing what he's done. So he's better than all the benefactors we've had in the past and there's not, there's not a single possibility that any benefactor we would have in the future could ever be as good as him. So this is majorly brown-nosing, right? He's really kissing up to him pretty hard. 
Um, and since the birthday of the god Augustus, so the day that Augustus was born, and they call him a god too there, the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the gospel. The birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the gospel and uses the exact same word that Isaiah uses in Isaiah, Isaiah 52, the exact same word that Jesus uses in Mark chapter one. The, the birthday of, of Augustus was the beginning of the gospel. Now, what is the gospel then? Right, these two things, Isaiah 52, seven, in the, the calendar and scripture of Prime, put those two together. Here's what it is. It's an announcement. The gospel, it's a technical term in the ancient world. It's an announcement that a king is ruling. It could be a birth announcement of a future king. It could be the announcement that, uh, uh, that a king has been installed on the throne. That's gospel. All right, so you're sitting in, let's say you're sitting in Naples in AD 10. And you're going to the marketplace. And while you're there, you hope to hear a little bit of news. And sure enough, a town crier comes into the city, has the out-of-town news, gets up on the rostra in the middle of the agora, and starts yelling stuff out. That's how, that's how news worked in the ancient world. Town crier comes in and starts yelling out the news. And the town crier says, the Cardinals won last night. This is an anachronism, right? Just pretend your worlds have been joined together somehow. Is that good news? Well, if you're a Cardinals fan, it's good news. But it's not gospel. If the town crier says the Nile flooded this winter and there's tons of grain and bread prices are going to be low this year, is that good news? Yeah, definitely. Everybody's happy about that. But it's not gospel. If the town crier says Julius Caesar, well, this is uh, uh, 10 AD. This is at the, so say Augustus Caesar won a big battle against um, the Gauls up in the north part of the empire. That would be gospel, because it's about a king doing king stuff. It's about a king ruling and reigning. Does that make sense? The gospel is a technical term in the ancient world. It's not a purely religious term. It's a technical term for a king ruling and reigning. Now, here's why I say it's also a religious term, because Augustus is a god. That's what they claim. So gospel definitely is. It's both religious and political, but you can't separate the two. It's only us white people that have done that that have separated religion and politics and said, you, you, you don't have to mix those, you shouldn't mix those up at all. In the ancient world, they would never think like that. And in fact, we don't either. We, 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 don't, we, we mix them up all the time. We just pull that card whenever we don't want to deal with something uncomfortable. So well, the, you don't, the religious people don't have any business telling us what to do. Um, in the ancient world, religion and politics were the same. But gospel is, now if we can go back to Mark chapter one, gospel is the announcement that the bad kings are out and that the new king is back in town and is, is going to rule and reign. So back in Mark chapter one, verse 16, uh, verse 15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The time is up. We've been waiting for uh, hundreds of years now. We, we've been, we have been sitting under the thumb of first Sennacherib and then Nebuchadnezzar and then Cyrus and then Alexander the Great and then the Caesars. We've been sitting under their thumb for hundreds and hundreds of years and now Jesus says, the time is up and the kingdom of God is here. God is about to come back and rule and reign. Repent, which does not mean, this is a whole other sermon in itself, which I've preached before. I won't do that now. I'll just give you the five-second summary. It does not mean do an inventory of your pet personal sins and decide you're going to be better. You're not going to be so lazy. You're not going to be so messy. You're not going to lose your temper at your spouse. The, all those things are fine things to do, but it's not talking about, like, go through your individual sins and try to be better. It's talking about reorient your life. 
away from the way you've been being Israel and reorient it towards Jesus' way of being Israel. Now, I will say this, because we talked about this last Sunday. I can say this, or two Sundays ago. There's lots of, oper- there's lots of stories about how to be true Israel in Jesus' day. There's the Pharisee story, which is God will act when he sees that we're sufficiently committed to obeying Torah. There's the Sadducees, which is, hey, God's on the side of the Romans. The best thing we do is just lay low, mind our own business, and let, just be thankful they let us have the temple. There's the Essenes view, which is, y'all are filthy. Let's go out in the desert and, and, and separate. There's the Zealots version, which is, God will defend us when we decide we have enough faith to attack the Romans. Then he'll step forward. And Jesus is saying, repent of all those false ways of being Israel and trust me for my way, way, way of being Israel. In other words, believe the gospel. Believe my gospel. I'm announcing that God is ruling and reigning. Let's go. Now, one quick comment, and then we'll move on to what does that mean for us today. He clearly is not saying, I'm taking you to heaven someday. He also is not saying, I'm here to forgive your sins. They would totally have questioned him about that. They already had the temple for that. They didn't need some guy to come forgive, or they don't think they need some guy to come forgive their sins. They do. The Romans don't kill people for saying, if you believe in me, I'll take you to heaven someday. They would just kind of like wink and giggle and turn the other way. But if somebody says, the bad king, we're going to get rid of him, and the new good king, God, is going to be installed in Jerusalem, that's how you get executed. That's how you get crucified. That's what Jesus was crucified for. So what we have to understand is this. What Jesus is doing is he's starting a revolution. He's doing something that meets the pavement. He's not telling you how to be a better person. He's not telling you how to feel better about yourself and to get over your sins. He's not promising future slice of pie in the sky. He's saying, I'm here to change everything, and it's starting now. That's why he gets killed. Now, we have backed off of that and turned it into pie in the sky or psychological health or I just need to get forgiveness because we've fallen for the whole separation of church and state thing. And the culture's been like, you go play your little private religious games over there and we'll let you be. And meanwhile, we'll do the real world over here. And Jesus is saying, repent and believe the gospel. I'm about to do the real world. I am the real world. I'm the creator and sustainer of the whole world. And this is how we're gonna do it. And we're gonna do it my way from here on out. And he gets killed because they hate that. But what they don't know is, but you guys know, is that by killing him, they actually validate it. They make it real. They bring it into existence. So what we're talking about here is this is what Christianity is about. If you go to a church and the message of the church is we can help you feel better about yourself, or you know, our point is your spiritual health, you're not getting everything that the gospel is. The gospel demands action. The gospel says Jesus is here and he's now in charge of every single square inch of the United States every single square inch. He does not let one little bit go to the bad guys. And the Christian church is witness to that, and we live that out. However paradoxically it might be, however impure and weak it might be from time to time, because we are part of the problem too, the the Christian church is part of the problem. Jesus is now Lord of everything. So what does that mean? Another way to look at it is this. So um, I'll, I'll say it this way. If God has won the victory, if he is now king in Jesus Christ, what does it mean for him to, to be living out this victory in the life of the Christian church, both, both me and you as individuals, as well as St. James as a whole, and all the other Christian churches that are around? What does that mean? What does that look like? Oh, a great way to answer this is, is this. Uh, and this is kind of another way to get at the question of like w- how we've watered down the gospel. Do you think that Christianity would be just as good, just as meaningful, that you would lose nothing from your Christianity if Jesus, 
thought experiment. If Jesus had been discovered by Herod's soldiers as a one-year-old, taken out and slaughtered, and then three days later as a one-year-old and some change, risen from the dead, would anything have changed about your faith? Is that all you need Jesus for, is just to die and be raised from the dead? Or is there a reason why the, gospel, why the Gospels, there are four of them, and they spend a lot of time talking about things Jesus is saying and doing before his death and resurrection? The reason why they spend so much time, all the Gospels spend so much time talking about what Jesus was doing and what he was saying and teaching is because the Gospel changes our world. It's not just a way to get your sins forgiven. It's not enough, you know, it's, it's, it's possible to say Jesus was born to die on the cross and for that to make, it's possible to say that and it be okay, but it's actually kind of watered down. Jesus, wasn't, Jesus was born to bring about the kingdom, which is what he spends three years doing, and then validates it by dying and rising from the dead. So let's take seriously what he's doing in the gospel, look at what he's doing there, and say, okay, well, that's for us too. Because Jesus does say to his disciples in John, I'm doing really great things here, but you guys, by the power of the Holy Spirit, will do greater things than me. He does say at the end of the Gospel of John, doesn't he? He breathes on his disciples and said, as the Father sent me, now I'm sending you. We do see in the book of Acts, the disciples in the early Christian church doing the things on earth that Jesus was doing during his ministry. So let's take that seriously. Let's ask, what is... Not what do we need to do, but what is Jesus doing in Glen Carbon that he's inviting us to join in because he is now king? All right, I'm gonna, there, there's a ton of these too. Like we could, this could seriously be the longest sermon ever. And some of you don't even believe that could be, that I could even achieve that today. But um, I'm gonna give you three things here. What are some of the victories that God has won in Jesus that we can live out here? So one is, uh, of course, and I just, spent, I just said a few minutes ago, this isn't the whole story, but it is part of the story. Jesus has won the victory over sin. He's won the victory over sin. So right after Mark chapter one and Mark chapter two, Jesus heals a guy who's paralyzed and he says to him, my son, your sins are forgiven you. Everybody's kind of freaked out because you can't do that. Only that's the temple stuff. And Jesus basically says, well, I am the new temple. I can, I can forgive sins wherever I'm at. Forgiveness of sins happens. But um, what does that mean for us? Well, it means your, your sins are, in Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven and my sins are forgiven too. But it also means that the Christian church has the privilege in the deep, deep joy of announcing to people that sins have been forgiven. Now, this is gonna take work because at this point in our culture, we don't really believe in sins. Well, at least we don't believe in forgivable sins. We believe there are things that you can do that are bad, but those things are unforgivable. Those things, sexual assault, racism, uh, pedophilia. These are things that they're horrible. Everybody agrees they're horrible and they cannot be forgiven. People say this, that, you know, I don't really believe in sin. They say that. But actually, when you talk to people, well, I'll just say, you can just look at the uh, um, uh, statistics that you can get from pharmaceutical companies or from uh, therapists and counselors. People, our culture is completely racked by shame. We're all embarrassed. We're all ashamed of who we are and what we've done. Well, people put up a wall. They don't let you in there. But if you and I will take the time to be in loving, deep relationship with people, they will eventually let us into their points of shame where we can have the privilege of saying, God forgives that. God forgives that. You can let that go. 
You don't have to be identified by that anymore. Whatever it is that you did in your past, the way that you acted in your past, the things that you've said in your past, your bad thought patterns, you don't have to be controlled by that or identify with that anymore because Jesus died on the cross for that. That's powerful. People don't know what to do with their shame now because if there's no such thing as sin, it's just a part of my biological makeup that I feel real horrible about myself. We get to say, no, it's not a part of your biological makeup. It's, it's an alien. It's a result of the fall. Jesus has forgiven that and, and redeemed that. We get to be a part of that. But like I said, that takes deep relationship. We can't be, if, if we say we're not gonna be involved with the people that have shame, well, first of all, we have shame too. But part of it is that the Christian church has to be a place where um, we don't glory in each other's shames, but we don't shy from each other's shames as well. Like this can't be a space where all the perfect people who've got it together comes in and, and, and hangs out here. Else it tells everybody else that I, can, I don't belong in there because I'm perfect. But if we're transparent about our brokenness in here, and we're also willing to love each other in our brokenness, to offer the same forgiveness to each other over and over, God forgives you for your sins in Jesus Christ. And this can begin to be a place where people can bring their shame and feel safe about that and know I don't have to carry it anymore. I don't have to hide it anymore because there's a place to go and get rid of it. That's underneath the blood of Jesus in the Christian church. May St. James be a place just like that. Second thing that we can do is this. I mean, Jesus, uh, um, one of the major victories that Jesus wins is the victory over sickness, right? Jesus heals people's physical ills. Right after our text in Mark 1, he meets Peter's mother-in-law and uh, heals her of a fever that was threatening her life. Jesus heals sicknesses all throughout um, uh, the Gospels. The, the early church is healing sicknesses uh, throughout, uh, throughout the book of Acts. I mean, Jesus raises three people from the dead too. Jesus is about healing physical sicknesses. He's about healing physical ills. This is a massive weight in our culture as well. The physical toll that people feel at the, at the diseases and the brokennesses and the pains they have in their body or in their minds. The toll that people feel caring for family members who, are, um, who have physical illnesses. The, the financial toll, have you guys ever checked out how much money gets taken out of your paycheck for health insurance? It's insane. Have you ever just gone for a simple imaging and looked at the bill afterwards? Have you ever tried to have a baby in a hospital, in the hospital system? The, the toll that people feel financially because of sicknesses, and I, you know, uh, pregnancy is not a sickness, but the healthcare system, that, that financial toll is massive. What can we do to be loving and serving people in this? One thing we can do is we can be actively praying for healing and praying for each other's healing. Uh, James says in five, uh, James, uh, James says in James chapter five, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. The reason that we don't do this in our church is not because it's not available. I actually have a flask of oil in my office right now. And the elders, we elders have done this before. But the reason we don't ask for this is because we've fallen for the enlightenment break between the real world and the religious world. Now, the religious world, that's about me getting to heaven someday, about me being forgiven for my sins. When I'm sick, I can go to Jesus and ask for that but he's not really gonna help my body. I might pray, like God, help me feel better or maybe just throw up a Hail Mary every once in a while, like God, save me from this cancer. But really, that's not, like, that's what the hospital system's for. You should use the hospital system totally, but we also should be asking God actively to heal us because if Jesus is Lord of the universe now and he, if he is the king who has won the victory over all sicknesses, if Jesus is indeed the great physician, this is the kind of thing we can expect him to do. And we can turn it over to him because not everybody was healed. 
in, in the New Testament. Not everybody's healed in the, in the book of Acts. Paul's not. At the end of 2 Corinthians, he says, I asked for healing three times. And God said, no, I want you to rely on my grace for this one. But we trust that we, tr we give that over to him. We don't say, I'm not even going to ask him. So we're going to ask him and then we're going to let him have that. And we're, we're going to know that he will physically heal us at some point. He might give me a taste of physical healing now. But whether he does or doesn't, I'm going to give him glory because someday he's going to raise my body from the dead and I'll never be sick again. Go to Jesus and ask him for healing because he is king over sicknesses. A couple other things we can do here too. I'll just throw this out here again. I think, uh, I'm not, this is, I'm not in charge here, but I think that like having a counseling center here at the church would be a good idea at some point in the future. Like mental health issues are crazy in our culture. I mean, cr crazy, expansive, pervasive, everywhere. To have a counseling center here would be serving Glenn Carbon well, I think. A way to say, Jesus is Lord of your lives. If you want healing from shame, if you want healing from anxiety, if you want healing from guilt, if you want healing from, if you want, if you want to, 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 to work through stress situations, Jesus is the Lord of that. There's other things that we can do as well. Uh, I'll just throw this up. I just, this, this, this came to me this week because Angela is a part of a mission board that had um, their annual, um, they had their annual uh, uh, board meeting. Sorry. They had their annual board meeting at an LCMS church in South St. Louis this week. And the church has, uh, uh, I'm, I'm not saying this is what we should do. I'm just saying, uh, let's go back to the sermon I preached a, a few weeks ago about the parable of the talents. Let's be creative. God's given us the Holy Spirit to be creative and think, think about ways of ministering the gospel in people's lives creatively. This church that Angela went to, LCMS Church, has, um, has a, a fitness center in it, which they've opened up to the community. And the, the community's free to come and join this fitness center. But there's a block in the middle of the day, there's a, there's a block of time in the middle of the day that, it's, that they close it, and it's open only for people uh, most of them, I think, and Angela can correct us after, after I say this, she can correct me. And then, not, not right now in the sermon, Angela, but uh, later you can ask her. Like, you, like most of you do, do, ask her, what did Aaron say wrong in the sermon this week? And she can, she can help you out. It's open just for people, I think mainly senior citizens, who have been assigned therapy uh, by their physical therapist or by their doctors, but their insurance has stopped paying for that. And so they open it up and they have therapists come in to give these people therapy for free. Who, can't, who don't have the, the, the finances to pay for it. But they do it in the name of Jesus. It's clear on the signage as you walk in. This is done in the name of Christ. This is done because Jesus, who is the king of this church, is the king of your bodies and is determined to, to, to heal physical sicknesses. I'm not saying we need to open a fitness center here. I'm just saying to think creatively about ways that we can minister the healing power of Jesus to the community is a good thing. Last thing, and then um, I'll wrap up and then we'll be done. Uh, and some of you know this is one of my favorite things to talk about. Jesus defeats, it's not just concepts, Jesus defeats the actual baddies. One of the main things that you get when you read the Gospel of John is about how Caesar is Lord and rules over the whole world. It starts off this way. Caesar puts this big tax on his entire empire, which basically says, I own you. Josephus tells us that that tax was the cause of the riots. The tax that Cyrenius started. Eventually, it took 70 years for it to boil over. But eventually, this is Josephus, not, not a Christian, a Jewish historian, says that that tax was the cause of the riots that caused the temple to finally be blown up by the Romans in AD 70. Caesar Augustus lurks over the whole story, especially in the Gospel of John, uh, uh, Luke and John. It comes out especially. 
Jesus has this great conversation with Pilate at the end of John about the nature of power. And Pilate basically says, do you know who I am? I can have you off like that. I am Caesar's representative. And Jesus basically says, you can't do anything to me unless somebody more powerful than you gives you the authority. It's a big, it's a big, who's in charge? Is Caesar Lord, which is what he was claiming to be? Or is Jesus Lord? Is Caesar the Soter? Like the prying inscription says, is, is Caesar the Savior? Or is Jesus the Savior? Is Caesar son of God? Like the denarii coin said in the Roman Empire, says son of God right on there, right underneath the picture of Caesar. Is, is Caesar the son of God? Or is Jesus the son of God? And Jesus says, I am, I am Lord of the universe. I tolerate no other lords. Paul says in Colossians chapter two, that Jesus, when he died on the cross and rose from the dead and ascended, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And he uses the word triumphing there, which is one of Caesar's favorite words, because a triumph, which is being described there, was a parade that Caesar would make all the people he conquered go on through the city of Rome before he executed them for rebelling against him. And, G and, and, and Paul says, Jesus put Caesar, Nebuchadnezzar, Sennacherib, all the American presidents, all the kings and queens in the world, all the prime ministers in the world, all the, all the, um, all the uh, business leaders in the world, all the cultural leaders, all the entertainment leaders, Jesus put them behind him and paraded them through culture and said, I rule and reign over them. I am now Lord and they are not. Christians are not to give their allegiance. They're not to give their worship. They're not to give their honor. They're not to place their hopes and their dreams in the failed political leaders of this world. I say failed because some of them are good and some of them are bad, but none of them can actually fix your problems. Only, only Jesus can do that because only Jesus is Lord of the universe. Now, somebody's gonna say here, we're gonna transition to the last point that we'll be done in a second. Somebody's gonna say here, there, if Jesus is Lord of the universe, why are there still bad leaders? Why are there still wars all over the world? If Jesus is now Lord of the universe, why do I have cancer? If Jesus is Lord of the universe, why am I broke and there's no hope in the future of me having relief from my financial problems? If Jesus is Lord of the universe, why do me and my sister fight and we, can, we haven't spoken to each other for years? If Jesus is Lord of the universe, why are all these bad things happening? Now, I'm not gonna solve all those answers right now, but I, let me just offer this up real quick. There's a mystery here. Jesus insists that he is completely in charge. What does he say right at the end of the Gospel of Matthew? The last thing he says to his disciples is this. All authority, all authority in heaven on earth has now been given to me. You guys go out and, and make disciples of everybody. Get everybody to submit to this authority because I am now king of everything. I now rule over the universe. So is Jesus wrong? There's a mystery. And the mystery goes like this. I mean, one way to look at it is this. It's, it's the mystery of the mystery of the Roman centurion at the end of the Gospel of Mark. The Roman centurion, who does he think the son of, if you ask that Roman centurion two days before Jesus' crucifixion, who's the son of God, who would he have said? So he said Caesar. Like he's, he's got the denarii coins. He knows who the son of God is. Picture of, his, picture of his master, son of God. He sees Jesus get crucified. And at, this is before the resurrection. At his crucifixion, he's watching this and somehow Truly, this man is the son of God. He takes a word for Caesar and he uses it for this man that Caesar had him execute like a slave. Does, does that make any sense at all? That the crucified Jesus, 
the defeated Jesus, the Jesus who Caesar crushed beneath his feet, would be the Lord of Caesar? It doesn't make a lot of sense politically. It doesn't make a lot of sense. It doesn't make any sense at all in the way that the world uses the ideas of power and control and lordship. But somehow, mysteriously, God has decided to be Lord of the universe by being the slave of the universe. So that when he said the last will become first and the first will become last, and if anybody wants to be master of all, they should be slave of all, he's actually not telling us what to do. He's actually describing himself. He becomes the crushed one so that he can be the sovereign one. This is the mystery, is that Isaiah 52, 7. Look at that with me again. What do I do with my bulletin? Here it is. I'm not, we're not going to read the whole thing. Isaiah 52, 7 is this announcement of the gospel, Right? God reigns. God rules and reigns. And what is it? Verse 10 looks like this. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. God is, he's flexing. It's just it's flex language. He's flexing. How does he do it? How is he going to do it? It transitions without a beat into this suffering one. The one who's going to get beat up. The one who's going to be marred. The one who's going to be so ugly that we can't even look at him. And what's he talking about? Look at verse 1. You've got to kind of look down... Uh, Chapter 53, but it's verse 1. It's like four lines uh, underneath that, that first paragraph, the, the second paragraph there. Who has believed what they heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who gets to see Jesus' flexed arm? He just described, not Jesus, who, he just described Yahweh's flexed arm, the arm of the gospel, your God reigns. And now he says, who gets to see the flexed arm? You, know, you, want, you want to see the flexed arm of Yahweh? Look at this one who was so beat up and mistreated that he was unrecognizable. Look at this one who was so disfigured that we said, God must hate that dude. We esteemed him stricken by God. And yet, he was beaten up because of us. He was beaten up for our afflictions. How does God flex his arm? He does it by becoming a human being and suffering for us. This is the way the kingdom will always work, by the way. I always hate to say this because I know people are freaked out by things going south. We don't, we don't want we, everything being comfortable is nice. But if you look at the story of the Bible, 95 out of 100 times, there's a few instances where it's not like this. It is when God's people are suffering and oppressed that God does miraculous rescuing, saving evangelistic actions. It's in Esther when God's people are about to be destroyed by the wicked Haman that God swoops in and saves them seconds before they're going to die. And Esther, the book of Esther says, tons of the Persians become Jews. Think about the early church. Well, I mean, Jesus is the heartbeat of this, but think about the early church. When the Roman Empire fell in the fourth century AD, Christians were freaked out because the Roman Empire for the past hundred years has been Christian and we've been safe. And now these Germanic barbarians are coming in and they're going to destroy us and Christianity is going to be gone. And what happens? The, the Germanic barbarians do come in and they get rid of the Roman Empire. But the more the Christians get beaten, the more they win because the Christian church gets defeated. But what happens is that the German, Germanic tribes become converted. The overlords become servants of the one true God. You cannot beat Jesus. He's undefeatable. You can squash him, you can crush him, you can wipe him out, you can kill him in the most gruesome, humiliating death possible. He just keeps coming back to life. And that's the way the Christian church is. Don't be turned off. Jesus is Lord of the, it might not look like it, but when it doesn't look like it most is when it most is the reality. 
When the Christian church most looks defeated, when Jesus most looks defamed, it's when his glory shines the brightest. It's when the power of the gospel does its most saving work. Trust in that, believe in that. Give up this whole thing about like Christianity being just my, for my private life and ask, what is Jesus doing to rule and reign over Glen Carbon? And how can we participate in this? Trusting him that no matter how things get, no matter how good or how bad things get, he is going to rule and reign over all. Let's pray. God, thank you for loving us. Make your gospel real amongst us. Help us to believe your gospel, Father. Help us to repent of the ways that we've been Christians, the ways that we've been Americans, the ways that we've been husbands and wives and friends and church members, and to trust Jesus for his way of being all those things. Make your gospel power real amongst us by the power of your word and Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.